also as a quick introduction to what we're doing here, we have a book, especially for visitors, Christianity and Liberalism, that was written 100 years ago, or 100 years ago next year, in uh, 1923, mm-hmm. and written as a, a book to make very clear that there was an attack on Christianity in that generation and the generation before, and Machen wants to kind of lay out the battle as, clear, as clearly as he can. He wants to help us see what historic Christianity is, uh, which is a supernaturalistic, redemption-oriented, messianic religion. Okay, And what liberalism, as he calls it, or maybe, maybe as they call themselves, or modernists, uh, who can, who can give me, maybe give me a quick thumbnail as far as what, what, is, what was liberalism 100 years ago, and what did Machen kind of have in his crosshairs uh, as, he's, as he's trying to distinguish Christianity from this other movement that, anyway, what do, what do you have? What do you, what do you picked up so far and can regurgitate coherently? <laughs> Rejection of the authority or some of the authority of Scripture as far as the supernatural. Okay, so the, uh, Kim says rejection of the, the Scriptures, uh, and I think certainly that, you know, while at the same time, this is the important part maybe, um, making pretense of holding to the Scriptures or certain parts of Scripture that they like, um, and other parts of Scripture that they don't like, why well, just forget about it? We all kind of have that tendency. I think we, there's a tendency in each of us to kind of shy away from the things that are uncomfortable and to cozy up to things that are comfortable. And there are plenty of doctrines, plenty of doctrines taught in Scriptures that are uncomfortable doctrines. Um, at least initially, getting into them, maybe there, there's some... So there's, there's that aspect um, of, of kind of making pretense with the Bible but not taking it particularly seriously, certainly at all of its points and its teaching. What else do you... Do you remember or kind of think of when you think of this liberalism of a hundred years ago? No exception in the Bible, but humanism. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, good. In fact, that is, it's, so humanism, which may be not a term that they were using so much, although I think we found it, I found it in chapter three, the next chapter, uh, humanism. And humanism would be something along the lines of, and it takes various guises, but elevating humans or man, mankind, to the height of, of what we aspire to, right? There's, and, and even at that point, trying to say, well, we're not really held back by anything but ourselves, anything but our own, you know, misunderstandings or our misconceptions or the barriers we put in our own way, which is contrasted to Christianity, which, of course, does elevate humans, but it elevates humans in the creation, and, but it de-elevates them, if that's the word, in the fall, right, that we're before God, we're... we're we have no righteousness. There's nothing in us to recommend us to God, but then it re-elevates humanity in Christ Jesus, the God-man, where God comes and takes human flesh and fuses divinity and, and humanity in the one person, Jesus Christ, and raises up his people out of death and sin. So there, there is a human prospering in, in glory in Christianity, but it's through redemption. Right. It, it needs, you know, we, need, we need redemption because of the fall, because of sin. Humanism tends to kind of overlook that or sidestep it, or minimize it, maybe. And we find that all the time in the church anyway, that, that, that kind of strain of thought. What other, what other things are you thinking of when it comes to liberalism? Liberalism might be um, more tending towards feeling rather than doctrine and fact. Uh, good. So, and we'll just kind of pick it up there. And that's on purpose. So the answer there, Jim gave, was the liberalism really is centered on emotion. Um, where historic Christianity is centered on doctrine and fact. 
things that actually occurred in history and what they mean. Okay, that's, and that, that's something that I think Machen's putting out over and over again. That's the case. And we'll get there, uh, this, this lesson or not, but um, the grandfather, oftentimes called the father of liberalism, was a guy named Friedrich Schleiermacher, fun name. He wasn't not German. Uh, anyway, so Schleiermacher definitely self-consciously placed the basis of Christianity in the feeling of subjection to God and the feeling of being overwhelmed by divinity, by God. And that's the kind of fundamental basis of what the Christian life's about. Historic Christianity said, well, of course, there, that's an aspect of, of living and knowing God is he's overwhelming. He's the Almighty. He's, he's eternal and unchanging. All those things have a tendency to blow our minds. But that doesn't mean that we don't use our minds. The doctrine, again, fact and meaning, the doctrine of Christianity is really central. So that kind of is a, a contrast between this liberalism 100 years ago and, and, and the, the fund of what was called fundamentalism at the same time. And Nation is uh, really an exponent of that. He would call himself, he wouldn't quibble. He'd say, I'm a fundamentalist. I believe the fundamentals of the Christian faith. But, of course, he's a broader Catholic evangelical, right? He understands the history of the church and history of doctrine more than fundamentalism kind of seemed to at the time. So there are kind of some terms to get a hold of and get a handle on. I want to pick up, we left off really at the page 26 to 28 question. And what we're doing then is just kind of going through this book week by week, hopefully chapter by chapter. But the second chapter is very big. Um, and it's, it's a little bit, it's one thing to understand particular doctrines, like the next chapter is God and man. So we have theology proper, the doctrine of God, but also anthropology, the doctrine of man, what the Bible teaches and what Christianity has taught about God and man. Those are particular doctrines, right? Uh, and those are kind of easier for us to get our, our heads around. Doctrine generally is a little harder. Right? It's a little, a little harder to kind of get your hands on. So we're going to take time, maybe finish the chapter today. I kind of hope so. Okay, so for the, the notes there for pages 26 to 28 in your handout, Machen sharply distinguishes between ministry that teaches general and permanent principles of religion, okay, in quotes, from ministry that proclaims an historical event along with the meaning of that event. So what is the difference between those two things? Can you spot the difference and put your finger on it? And it's not like they're just enemies, right? I mean, not like they're absolute enemies. I think there was plenty of wisdom in the scripture and principles to live by, and you bet. Uh, but that's, if, if that's all we teach from the scripture, they're... We're, we're missing the mark. So what's the difference between what he calls, anyway, the general and permanent principles of religion? What, what is that? What, is, what are the general and permanent principles of religion? What's he have in mind? Well, that's a good question, because uh, Isaiah talks about God hating religion, so it's interesting that he uses that term, uh, maybe in a broad sense, that, uh, you know, Okay, good enough. Um, and I think it's right. So the, the, the word religion is rightly a whipping boy, um, but also wrongly. I mean, pure religion is, James says, this is what, this is what you do. You visit orphans. And you, you know, so religion itself isn't a bad word, though it, it kind of becomes one, and, and for good reasons. Part, mostly because men, women, children, make up stuff. 
they make up the way they approach God and what they do, and if we're just making it up, then that's a human-based religion, and it's not going to be helpful. In fact, it's going to pull us away from God. The revealed religion is in the Scripture. And the custodian of that revealed religion is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah? I think what he was getting at is, like, so the apostles weren't just like, oh, I listen to the attitudes. Those are good Those are good things, and we're going to, like, make a religion out of it. But that they based it in an historical event of Christ dying and being who he said he was. Right. As opposed to just, like, oh, these are good principles. Or, I think that's what he was talking about. I think you're onto it, too. And then these deeper principles, like, okay, the Bible reveals to us these deeper principles of religion and you know you can you can kind of make philosophy out of it or religiosity out of it and and or you know you, you may be putting a better guise on it um, that there are there are there are plenty of parts of the bible that are wisdom for us to live by right and so um it's it's easy i think for for teachers to take those pieces of wisdom and say here here and then give them out and everyone says great that's helpful and i can live better now okay good well that's not bad, it is bad if that's all you offer as a Christian minister. Because anyone can offer that. Anyone in the whole wide world can offer you wisdom to live by. Now, God's wisdom is better than men's wisdom, so if it's coming out of the Scripture, that's good. But the point of the Scriptures is to make us wise unto salvation. And that's through the God-man. That's through the, the event of the Incarnation and of the crucifixion and the resurrection and what those things all mean where the liberals of his time, they don't want to talk about that so much. They might want to talk about the crucifixion as an example, and I think that's what he's going to be getting at right here, but as far as this whole messianic reality that Jesus proclaims about himself and that the apostles proclaim about him, yeah, not so much that. We don't really want to talk about that so much. We'd rather talk about living wisdom and, and points for life and things like that. Your best life now is a great example. Right? Now, I've, I've listened probably like you know six or ten Osteen sermons. That's it. But I have, I know, it's a lot. Um, and it really, it doesn't seem like a lot, but it is. And, um, and I've read his book, Your Best Life Now, and I don't really hear anything objectionable in what he says. I just don't hear the gospel. I don't hear a Christian message. I hear points for life. And they're drawn from the Bible, and they're little Bible texts referencing things. But that's all it is. And if that's all it is as a Christian minister, you've missed your call. The call of a minister is to proclaim and minister Christ, not just wisdom or principles of religion and that sort of thing. And that's, that's, I think, the distinction that Mason's getting at here. Say, wisdom's great, but without Christ, that wisdom is like a resounding, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, right? We, we need Christ in this thing, and he's the one who ministers his wisdom to us by the word. So maybe that kind of helps you distinguish a little bit of what he's after with this idea of uh, general and permanent principles of religion. Versus one that proclaims an event, that proclaims Christ in his, his incarnation, uh, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and that he's coming again, right? That that's the minister's job and the Christian's job. Yeah, Darlene. Okay, yeah. Um, and our dating system bears witness. And, uh, and the secularists attempt to destroy the dating system's a joke because they're just changing the letters before and after the numbers. Right? Usually dating systems have something very central that makes that the beginning point. You know, Rome was founded in what? Remember, Calvin? 
April, 20, April 21st, 753 B.C. That's the date of the calendar. It starts there. Everything goes from it, right? So all the, all the secularists have done in our age is just kind of like erase the A.D. and the B.C. and put B.C.E., which is nice. You can put an E. after it, and that's nice. Um, and C.E. For, for A.D. and say, good, we've now de-Christianized the calendar. And, and some Christians buy that because they're easily led astray. But anyway, our whole Western dating system, which has overcome the entire world, is based upon exactly what Bates is talking about and Darlene just brought up, right? That everything changed with the event of Jesus, right? The coming of Jesus, the work of Jesus. Karen, do you have something? Oh, you look like it. Look like it for sure. All right, so the next, the next one, unless there's another, more, more, you know, another comment or question around that. So there's a place in Christian teaching for the wisdom of the scriptures and the wisdom to live by and, and you know, how to run your mouth and how not to run your mouth, what to do with your hands, what not to do with your hands, and so on. Right? There's plenty of that in the Bible, and that's great. But if that's all we have to minister, we're missing the point of the scriptures, which is the Son of God, the Messiah. And that's our, our next issue here. So what is meant, this is from pages 29 to 32, what is meant by messianic consciousness of Jesus? The, what is meant by the messianic consciousness of Jesus? How does this mess with modernists? Okay, so what is the messianic consciousness? Something that Darlene was just kind of putting her finger on there. But what does that mean, the messianic consciousness? Well, Jesus was proclaiming that the kingdom is here now. Yeah, sure. So the kingdom is here and that he's the king bringing it. Right, he's the messianic one. He's the one that they've been waiting for. Um, you know, just like John's disciples when he's in jail go and, and ask uh, Jesus, "Hey, are, are you the one, or are we waiting for another? Are you the one?" And remember, John had said, "I'm not the one. In fact, I'm not even I'm not even worthy to untie the shoes of the one who is who baptizes with fire and the Holy Spirit. Well, I baptize with water." And Jesus says, "Go and tell John what you see and hear." Right, the, the the lame walk, the blind see, etc. The dead are raised to life. Here are the signs of Messiah. Go take those signs back to John and tell him that. Right? He didn't say, "Yes, I am." He says, "Look at the signs and make your own judgment." Right? And that's a help for us as far as apostolic signs and messianic signs and what they mean. They're not just kind of playthings of all Christians, but they're signs that point to a man and say, "This is the one." Listen to him, whether it's messianic or his apostles that he sends out from there. So Jesus is conscious, he's aware, and his, his speech lets on that he's aware, that he is Messiah. That, so why, what's, that, what's the problem then for modernists when it comes to that? I mean, we'd say, sure, yeah, Jesus knew and proclaimed he's Messiah. It's kind of weird, sometimes he told people not to tell, you know, stuff like that. But overall, we can clearly, from Jesus' words, recognize that he thought he was Messiah. So what's the problem there for Modernism. They're unable to believe it. They're unable to believe it. That's that's important. Uh, that was probably the most fundamental reality. Uh, we can't believe until God opens the heart to believe. But yeah. Well, you can't embrace Christ as a good man or a good teacher and reject his proclaiming to be Messiah God. Sure, but, but why would you want to reject that? That's that's maybe the question I'm after. Why do the liberals, the modernists, want to reject that? What's the problem? It puts all power in Christ's hands, right? Well, it makes Christ something other than a good man we can follow, and he did neat stuff, and sure was a neat guy. He's maybe the best of guys, that guy, Jesus. 
In fact, we don't need all this theology. We don't need all this doctrine around them. We just need Jesus, right? And we can appeal to something like the Sermon on the Mount and say, listen, we don't need all Paul. We don't need all this doctrinal stuff around them. We just need Jesus and the simple message that he proclaimed, like the Sermon on the Mount. That's kind of maybe the idea behind this thing, Darlene. Yeah, what Messiah brought. Yeah, sure. Jim. Yeah, right, so we want to kind of, and, and again, that impulse, whether it's that specific one, God is love and I want to hear anything else, or just the narrow thing I want to hear about Jesus and God, that's the point, nothing else is the point. Where Jesus steps up and says, no, you're wrong, there are lots of points and you're missing them. <laughs> Principally, that I, this, this supernaturalistic expectation of the God-man has come together in me, Jesus says, I'm the Savior of the world. I'm the Redeemer of God's elect. I'm the one. And they can say, oh, he's a good man, he's a good example, those sorts of things. He's love, he doesn't hate anybody, whatever they want to make up about him. But the things he says about himself, that makes them nervous, because they don't really want to hear that. They're not they're going that direction. It's on another hand somewhere, I thought. Yeah. Well, if you, if you accept that he is Messiah, then you also have to accept that you need a Savior, too, right? Yeah, so sure. And yeah. somebody has authority over you, and you will be judged. And it pulls in all the Messianic prophecies from the Old Testament, and you have to accept all those as well. And yeah, so it's, it, it kind of comes as a package, this whole Christianity deal. And uh, we don't want all the pieces of the package. Right? We want certain aspects of it, and we'll make much of those. Uh, and again, this, this is a tendency we all have. It's not just the liberals who do this. We do it too. Right? We just do it differently. We have different things that make us uncomfortable, I guess. Um, I don't know. If, yeah, sure. Absolutely, right. So if, if, if all that's really being said is, is be nice to people because you like to be, have people be nice to you, okay, well, so far so good. I mean, I don't think anyone's got a big deal with that, but it definitely requires a whole different response, like I think Kim was saying too, and saying, oh, here's this Messiah who's come to save the wicked and the lost. Suddenly it's like, oh, well, I'm, I must be wicked and lost or not, right? And if I'm not, then I guess Jesus says, I didn't come to save those who were, you know, those who were well. The physician comes and healed sick, right? So there has to be an admission that's, for us, it's hard, right? Not only that we're wrong, but that we're wicked, right? We don't. No one says that. We don't think it anymore. And I think that's something important for the next chapter. Is like we don't talk about sin. We don't think of ourselves as sinners and under the wrath of God, rightly so. But the Bible is that way through and through, right? We think of ourselves as pretty good guys. And Jesus didn't come to save the pretty good guys. He came to save the lost and the wicked. Uh, anyway, that's important. The uh, 
the Sermon on the Mount, just as a word, you know, if you go ahead and read that, right, in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, um, you'll find, just like Mason says, not, not only does it have theology in it, it's not just, hey, be nice and do nice stuff to people and that kind of thing, you know, be peacemakers and, you know, just take and think of the Beatitudes, but when Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, what's he doing? As Yahweh himself, right? Yahweh who wrote the commandments on the stone, Jesus says, I'm going to tell you more than that. I'm going to elaborate on Yahweh for you. Okay, well, I'm, all right, well, that's something, right? That's, that's just the beginning of the theology, the Christology of the Sermon on the Mount, right? So it's, if you can blur your eyes and cross them and say, ah, oh, that Sermon on the Mount, that's, that's really just the good ethical stuff of Jesus. But you have to read it very shallowly, and you have to omit parts of it, even that. Right? So there's these appeals, say, well, we just want Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. That's what the real Christianity is. But it's too much Christianity even there. Right? It's too much doctrine even there. Right? And, and the kind of stupendous doctrine of the God-man Jesus, right? which is the centerpiece of Christian theology, the, tri- the triune God and the incarnation of the Son of God, the very center mysteries of Christian theology entirely all the way back. And we got it all right there, right? these, these central Christian doctrines. Okay, um, so the appeal to just Jesus and just a certain part of his ministry or things that we like about him just kind of fail, and they fail in all sorts of ways. But that's what the liberals are attempting to do, right? Kind of minimize and, and, and take certain parts of Jesus and certain parts of the Bible that they like and not do the rest. Question. Yeah. Paul, Paul, in his letter to Timothy, outlines these modernist liberals to, to watch out for, you know, for Timothy, or 2 Timothy 3, in, a, in their, they all, lovers of money, lovers of self, I mean, covers the whole thing, but then... Having the appearance of godliness, you thought, you know, they're, oh, look, they're helping their mother across the street or something, you know, or they're, they're doing something. Wearing the right stuff on the right day. There you go, yeah. sort of good things, but uh, avoid them. Watch out for them. Sure, and, and recognize that that's, you know, uh, that that's how men use religion as a cover for their own wickedness. They use Christianity, they use Christ as a cover for their own wicked desires. Um, say it ain't so, it is, and it always has been. That's a temptation we have, and, and uh, liberalism is a great example of just that. Right? The guise of Christianity, the, the appearance of godliness, but really rebellion under, underneath the surface of it. Any other questions or thoughts? Let's blast ahead here at page anyway, 38, that section down there, 38 and 39. I'll say it in just a comment along the way, it's on page like 33 and following 33 and 34, he has this question he asks of, well, how do we connect to Jesus? There's this enormous historical gulf between the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, you know, in the beginning of the modern age, and us, here 19, now 20 centuries later, uh, what's the connection? And it's not that we, you know, some people actually got to see Jesus and they were physically ministered to by Jesus. Well, there's a connection for them right there, but we're not that. Right? We're, we're, we're much later down the road, so what's the connection, of course, easy to finally develop? So the connection's faith. God is faith. God is organized such that we're connected to Jesus by faith. That's our, that's our lively connection to the Lord Jesus and how we receive his, his benefits, and that, of course, by his death and resurrection, the, the fundamental events of, of Christ's life. Now, but to page 38... Of 
cool. Um, let's read that. Doctrine can be subtle and technical. I don't know how many of you have studied theology. Right? And actually, you know, sit, sit there and kind of done the work. It's one thing to kind of read the devotional books and kind of draw near the Lord. That's good. We need to do that. But, um, like C.S. Lewis said, he, he feels it's more devotional to put a pipe in his teeth and a pencil in his hand and study doctrine. That's more devotional for Lewis than a devotional. I agree entirely. Um, that's, that's certainly how it is for me. That's not how everyone lands on it. But we have to study these things. And if you study doctrine, in fact, listen, if you study anything at all, period, you're going to be dealing with technicalities and difficulties and, and, uh, and controversy around the way things are, right? Anybody studied anything you know well? Is there controversy in your, in your field? Right? Is, are there technical words and things that you get? Got to take, it takes time to learn. You've got to kind of get up on the jargon and what, what people are talking about. Yes, everything you've ever learned is that way, even if you didn't notice it. Even if you didn't press into it far and say, oh, there's a whole world here in biology. There's a whole world in one square foot of grass out there. Okay, that's how things are. And that's how doctrine is, too. And sometimes people are put off by that. I've, I've had plenty of conversations where people are exasperated. Oh, well, there's all this distinction here and that there. And Why can't you just say what you mean? I'm like, well, why don't you just wake up and welcome to like planet Earth and the way things are? Okay, uh, that's, that's what I'm thinking. I don't usually say that. But that's what I'm thinking. It's like, have you studied anything at all? And if you have, then studying that is like studying this. Except this one has a pedigree of thousands of years of discussion. Okay, you're, you're, you're in over your head from the word go when you study theology. But we make, we make headway. God's gracious, and God gives us understanding, and we, we you know, progress by, by his spirit, by, by his mercies. Um, but anyway, doctrine can be subtle and technical, and maybe that's the problem. Maybe it is. What is vituperation? So he's talking about vituperating the, uh, the creeds and, and old Christianity. What does he mean by that? Anyone look that up? What? Yeah. And we'll look it up in an actual physical dictionary. Did someone pick up a volume and look it up? Raise your hand if you did. I didn't. <laughs> Good job. Good job. Yeah, anyway, what's it mean? Sure, right. Yeah, just blowing them off as if they're nothing and abuse, with abuse kind of thing. And have you, have you met Christians who think that the Spirit, like, invented Christianity today and gave it to them and everyone before today doesn't even matter? Yeah. Like, all the time, I run to, like, you know, it's like, everything that's happened, the Holy Spirit didn't really come until, like, yesterday, and um, and we have the Spirit, so we know things now, and those guys in the past, they're just, it's all dead orthodoxy. Have you ran into that? Oh, man, I tell you, it's everywhere, and he does a great job here saying, hey, have you read some of that old orthodoxy? Because it's full of life. Right? If you go pick up John Bunyan, you'll find he's going to lead you, he's going to teach you, and you're going to learn from a teacher who connects with your heart because he's a faithful Christian teacher, even though he's 400 years back. The same thing goes with any of them. Any of them. And we say something like our own, our own doctrinal standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith or Catechisms, it's very easy to say, oh, yeah, that's just 17th century orthodoxy. Uh, it's all dusty. Leave it on the shelf. But when you engage that text, when you engage those ideas that are put forward there, you'll find they're anything but that. They're wonderful, faithful Christian doctrines being taught and proclaimed, and the Christian heart would rejoice in that. So, yeah, this isn't dead orthodoxy. This is live, glorious stuff from my brothers and sisters in the faith hundreds of years ago who are struggling with the things in their lives, who are struggling with the things in their generation the same way we're struggling now. Right? We're brothers in arms all the way back. 
Right. So I think that's an important thing for us to realize that uh, the, the more we read, I think, back farther, um, whether in the Reformed or Presbyterian tradition or more broadly, I hope more broadly, um, that we find that it's not dead orthodoxy a bit. It's men who love the Lord and gave their lives to the service of the Lord and the teaching of God's Word, and that still benefits us now. And it can benefit us directly by reading it, but it also benefits us indirectly because it changed the world, right? That doctrine, that teaching from Augustine or from Luther or whoever, made the world we live in. Right? We're downstream from all of that. And so it's, it, it, there are a number of points of influence in, in that. So I think that's a, a helpful little nugget that they, Machen's given us. is Dead orthodoxy is hardly that. Right? There, there is a way in which we can just kind of want to be right, and that's all there is, and we're just right. And, uh, but that's not the orthodoxy that Machen's after, which he gets to in a moment. And it's not the orthodoxy you find through history either. You find a much more lively Christian reality as you look back. Any, any thoughts on that one or questions? Let me ask you this. How many old books do you read? How many old books do you read? Right? We, we, we like to read the books of our current generation because they make sense. They kind of hit where we are. Um, but older books, even though it kind of maybe takes a little more work to get into them because they're not written you know, like cotton candy stuff today or whatever. You know, they're not written to be read by modern readers. They're written to be read by, you know, medieval or Reformation or whatever. But we find that we learn quite a bit. I find that I learned a tremendous amount partially of what I don't see now they could see differently then. Right? There are certain blinders we have just walking in the door, right? And they didn't have the same blinders 400 years ago. They didn't have the same blinders 1,600 years ago. Um, that helps us see maybe where we're coming at things in our own peculiar way uh, in our own generation. So that's just a... Anyway, a commercial for reading, for reading older books in the Christian tradition and older teachers because God gave the church teachers. And that doesn't mean just right now. He's given the church teachers generation after generation after generation. And we can look back to those teachers and glean a great deal from them. So please do that. So, yeah. And that's helpful, just that all by itself. There's, I mean, ask you to raise your hand. Do you think we live in the worst of times? Many people would say, yeah, it's, it's never been worse than this. I think, I think you need to learn some more history. Um, because there are, there are all kinds of great times and terrible times, and times of where wickedness flourishes, but also other times where righteousness flourishes. And the good old days weren't all so good, to quote Billy Joel, and tomorrow's not as bad as it seems. It's a Billy Joel quote. Prophet one of yours. Uh, but anyway, that's it. The good old days weren't all that good. The Reformation was an enormous struggle that led to bloodletting all over Europe. Say, so, yeah, the Reformation was great. Well, it was and it wasn't. Right? It was and it wasn't. Um, and so we are in our own time, where it's, it, yeah, there's, there's obviously plenty of sin to bemoan and, and oppose and make war on in our own selves, but also in the world. But there's the Spirit of God still working. The church still building and growing and God's still doing the work so it's always like Dickens said the best of times the worst of times that age is just like our age okay. different, maybe different battles maybe different battle lines but the battle is still the same the whole war is still the same we're in the midst of that that's helpful yeah yeah 
good. I like the, the phrase pulsating with life. Uh, that, that these dead Orthodox documents, you'll find pulsating with life, uh, particularly if you're a lively as you read them. Right? So some of the issue is your own liveliness coming to a text to study or to, to be discipled. Um, and if we just assume it's dead, then maybe we approach it badly. But Okay, so I want to get to 34 or 39 and 40 here and these little caveats that he gives. Now, down at the bottom of page 39. We've got about 10 minutes to wrap this up. Okay, maintaining, this is the second to the last paragraph there, in maintaining the doctrinal basis of Christianity. In other words, Christianity is based on teaching. Okay, the events of what happened and what they mean, and that's taught. Right, the event and the meaning. In maintaining the doctrinal basis for Christianity, we are particularly anxious not to be misunderstood. There are certain things that we do not mean, is the caveats I was asking about. What does, what does the first one does he not mean? So he says, in the first place, we do not mean that if doctrine is sound, it makes no difference about life. Okay. If doctrine is sound, if you, if, you, if, you, if you check all the right theological boxes, you get, you know, 30 out of 30 on your Westminster test, uh, or whatever it is, you know, that, that's, that's what you need. You, just, you know the right answer is, you understand the doctrine, um, but your life doesn't matter. Is that, is that what Machen's after here, as far as orthodoxy and doctrine? No, that's not what he's after. And says, in fact, what? What about this? You, you guys have read it. Makes all the difference yeah, these are intimately connected, right? The the way we deal with the truth of God, the way we uh, the way we understand what God has revealed, has everything to do with how we live, right? Because it's out of our hearts, it's out of it's out of us that we live our lives. Right? The, the external, the things that we do, come out of the heart. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, what the mouth speaks. The things that we say, the things that we do flow out, and they flow out from our understanding. And if we have a, you know, if we have a vast misunderstanding of God, like this liberalism, it's just wide of the mark at every point you look. And I would say just like that is Mormonism. Wide of the mark at every single point you examine. It's like they're crazy, they're crazy, they're crazy. There's no historic Christianity there. It's all different. Right? It's like, a, anyway, that's... Okay, so, you know, if, if we have this kind of situation... Um, where the things that we believe and think are false is going to lead to false living. And you might say, well, that's interesting with Mormonism because, you know, they're great neighbors. They're, they're nice people, right? You ever met a Mormon that wasn't a nice person? <laughs> I mean, as far as just how they come across, how they talk to you and whatever else. No, they're all nice you know, to the point where it almost makes you sick. Um, <laughs> would, you, would you kick me or do something so I could see you're like a real normal dude? Um, but anyway, so, but... But I guess the connection here, when I'm going astray with Mormonism, is that the Christian life is rooted in doctrine. It's rooted in what we know about God, what we know about Jesus Christ, His Son, what we know about our own sinfulness and the redemption that we have in Christ, and that gives life, that gives rise to the Christian life. If it's not that way, it's something else. It's some kind of legalism, the living of life. It's not a response to Christ and the living, you know, by the gospel. Um, and gratitude. So that's important. There's the life and doctrine are connected. People want to just, uh, just have good doctrine, don't worry about your license. That's not it. These go together. And in fact, uh, the life adorns the doctrine and, and uh, connects with people because we live and connect with people. Right? Uh, yeah, Kim. Yeah, I like, I like it when he was talking about, it was actually hard to read, when he was talking about like right after the crucifixion and just like how devastated they all were. Actually, it's really hard for me to read that part. It's so depressing. <laughs> but 
like, they didn't go out and go, well, okay, he's gone. So, but we're still like all his teachings. We like all his, we're just going to keep going with the movement, right? Right. No, it, the, when, they, when the resurrection came, that's what changed them. That's what affected their lives to go out and actually <coughs> teach the sermon on matter whatever. I, I like that a lot. You bet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's, that's an important reality of event. Yeah. Right, versus this kind of, you know, principles of religion. Well, Jesus taught many principles of religion. We're going to carry that on sort of thing. It's like, no, he's dead. We're dead. <laughs> Until he's alive, and suddenly it's a game changer, right? And as we discussed last week, that Mason doesn't quite mention, but the important one is Pentecost, right? So it's like there's a turnaround for the, for the disciples because of the resurrection, to be sure, but there's still a good deal of confusion. And it's when the Spirit comes, when Jesus pours out his Spirit upon his church, then it kind of, that's the gas, right? That's the, so, but, but the same idea is there. That, that death kind of like ended all, right? And would carry on, you know, that kind of thing. Um, okay. So, the, you have something there again? No, you keep moving your hand. It's like an auction. You're going to get called. You're buying it. <laughs> You're buying it. Okay. The second, so that's the first one, is, is kind of dealing with the idea that if your doctrine's good, your life doesn't matter. And that's clearly false. I mean, it's clearly unbiblical. Uh, your life does matter. God calls you to live for him. To give your life to him, to obey with joy his commandments. Uh, and that in the context of what he's done for you in the cross and in the empty tomb. Right? Not just to be good little boys and girls, but to follow Jesus who gave himself up to death for you and was raised for your justification. So that's the first, uh, the first caveat. This kind of a doctrinal Christianity doesn't mean detached from life. In fact, doctrine is the basis for your living. The second one, the second caveat, comes on at the bottom of page 40. We'll just read this tiny little paragraph and talk about it, because he gives some examples which I think are helpful and fun, particularly the premillennial one. Um, in the second place, we do not mean, in insisting upon the doctrinal basis for Christianity, that all points of doctrine are equally important. It is perfectly possible for a fellow Christian... Uh, for is perfectly possible for Christian fellowship to be maintained despite differences of opinion. Now, we all might say, well, yeah, sure. But it's not so easy to do, is it? You kind of find yourself, if you have a doctrinal difference with somebody, trying to figure out is this, how important is this thing? Right? How important is it? Uh, and the, the example, the first one he gives, interestingly enough, is with, within, within the general framework of the fundamentalists, the people who are standing for it, say, well, no, the Bible does teach supernaturalism and miracles and the resurrection and things like this. And, of course, the liberals are saying, no, 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 those are all just myths, and now we're beyond that. Those, those are the kind of the battle lines here of the liberals and the fundamentalists. Well, within that fundamentalist camp, and Machen's one of them, uh, it's largely premillennial. Now, that may not mean much to you as far as eschatology, but it's a particular understanding of the, the way Jesus will return uh, prior to a thousand-year period of uh, time where he'll reign physically on earth. Okay, that's a premillennial return of Christ. Before the millennium, Jesus physically returns. Machen doesn't like that doctrine very much. Uh, the Bible Presbyterian Church seemed to like it a great deal. Uh, as it turns out, a little bit later, when the, when the Bible Presbyterian Church came into existence, came out of the mainline, it uh, set itself up explicitly as premillennialist. Right? So we, the, the Bible Presbyterian Church has, since 1936 or 8, uh, promoted premillennial eschatology, but been open to other Orthodox Christian eschatologies as well. So it's funny, I stand here before you as probably the only postmillennialist in the Presbytery. Um, I don't think in the entire synod, though some of them died. Russ Folk, who used to be the elder here, was a post-millennialist. 
um, and so on. So there's, you know, there, it's, it's, you know, different, different eschatological understandings are around, but he sees this one as a problem. So, oh, okay, well, this premillennialism is a problem. Well, what do you do with it? How do you deal with a problem like premillennialism? Sure, study it. I'm trying to think of a song. How do you deal with a problem like it's a person's name? Maria. Maria, there we go. That's what's what in the back of my mind there. Yeah. So Maria is probably an easier problem to deal with than premillennialism when it comes down to it. Uh, but what's, what's, he, what's he have to say about this? Is this a point? I mean, what do we do with the difference like that? Bill had an answer when you just said, study it. Yeah. yeah. So study it to know it and understand what the real issues are, right? Not just have a general understanding, say, ah, oh, they're this way and this way. Pre-mills are all this bunch of pessimists, and post-mills are all this bunch of optimists, and that's as far as you get. Okay, well, you haven't got very far. You know, that doesn't really help you because they're, anyway, that's, that, that's too simple. But you need to study it. You have to study the doctrine, but not act as if the differences are unimportant. Right? You can study, you can come together, and you can, you can debate, you can talk, knowing that the differences are important, but they don't reach all the way down to what is the most important. Right? That's, that's an important kind of thing coming together as we deal with this. Yeah? Well, not that this is supported at all in our culture presently, but discussing it, you know, in a way that is respectful and polite and intelligent would be a very good way to do it. Yes. Yeah. Like, like Machen himself. This guy is a great example. And Chesterton's another good one. Um, who, they make war with their words, but they do it in a way that you can make war with them. Right? You, you, you don't feel disrespected if you're on the other end of their criticism. But rather, you kind of feel respected and your position is taken seriously enough to actually engage it carefully, as opposed to just to wave it off, you know, something like that. Yeah, Vivian, you have something to say? Uh, I think maybe this is a point where, not just this, this doctrine, but this doctrine of debatable matter, or the other debatable matters. I mean, I think maybe more close to some of our hearts would be, you know, that the question of baptism. Yeah. So, but I think it's so important where the spirit of Christ and his love among us helps us to be able to debate something or study something and, and even disagree but it's healthy, and it grows us all. Yeah. And without the person of Christ, without the person of Christ who enables our spirit, I mean, that, and how much damage and destruction has been done by Christians even going to the point of killing each other over things that were probably debatable matters that should have been discussed to jurors. Yeah. As you're mentioning, I, I really like the way you are um, continually saying we need to examine how we tend to do the same thing too instead of instead of just going, oh, these, those dirty <laughs> Yeah, right. It's, <laughs> it's too easy to do that. Yeah. Those, the, the people now who pervert doctrine, I mean, it's like we, I think that's super valuable to go, how do I do also do this in my subtle little yeah. way? Holy way. We're holier in doing it, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's good. And, and we'll, you, know, you, can, you can see, at least on the back of the sheet, you got your hand up there. So he, he goes into these different little avenues and say, well, what about this eschatological difference? What about the sacraments? Okay, there's your baptism that you're talking about right there. And that makes, the, actually, the modern age of quite... I'd rather live now and debate sacramental theology than live in the 17th century and debate sacramental theology. <laughs> Wouldn't you? 
polity and ordination, right? The shape, the, the organization of the structure of authority in the church. You know, is it Episcopal, kind of top-down? Is it Congregationalist, bottom-up? Is it Presbyterian, kind of mixed both? Um, are, are those things important to the life of the church and its longevity? Yes, they are. They're tremendously important to the life of the church and its longevity. And that's a point of disagreement, historic disagreement among Christians. Can we disagree and be faithful? Can we disagree and not be jerks? Um, that's, that's important. Can we disagree and not kill each other over it? Uh, that sort of thing. So you can see page 43, he gets to Arminianism, right? There's a, there's a, there's a cleft in, in evangelical theology, right, in Protestant theology around Calvinism on the one hand, the sovereignty of God in salvation, and then an Arminianism on the other, which minimizes that sovereignty in order to maximize a certain amount of freedom or, or, or will on man's part. Um, well, that's, there's a historic division. Have you studied it? Or you just kind of know your position? Those are two different things. Right? We all kind of have a position and kind of feel, oh, okay, I got this. But have you studied it? Have you read? Have you actually studied it? And if the answer is no, keep your mouth shut. Keep your mouth shut. Uh, you're, not, you're not going to aid the church in bringing unity around these issues when you haven't studied it and you're talking. Okay? Uh, that's important, I think, for us. Because we all like to talk. We like to express ourselves. We have ideas. But we need to make sure those ideas are well studied. We've studied the scripture in the, in the church to be able to, to engage in these. And the last one he has is Roman Catholicism. Right? There's a deep cleft between Protestant theology and Roman Catholic theology. No question about it. And any of these, they're, they're, you know, to be honest with the division, right? to be honest among you know, where, the, uh, where the points of, of, uh, of controversy are. And not to minimize them, but to be clear with that. And his comment there is, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff that you know, Roman Catholicism is a, uh, a corrupted form of Christianity. But he says, even then, we have vastly more in common with Roman Catholics than we do with these liberals in our own denomination. The Presbyterians in this Presbyterian's denomination, before this Presbyterian denomination kicked them out, or at least defrocked them, um, he says, these liberals, they're really not Christians. They're not practicing Christianity. They're not teaching Christianity. They're teaching something entirely different. At least Roman Catholicism is historic Christianity, if perverted and obscured in some ways. We have a lot more in common. It's the same thing today. It's the same thing today, even though we have issues with the doctrines of Rome. I certainly do. But I find that I would have far more in common with a faithful Roman Catholic than I would with an unbeliever, basically in Christian guise, who wants to say God's love and that's all there is. There's just a vast difference. And trying to figure out where those lines are and be clear what the, what the points of disagreement are. And to be able to engage in those disagreements with some knowledge, right? Having done some work and, and also engage in those without rancor, right? Without, uh, without undue rancor. So that's, I, I think he does a good job saying doctrine's important. It's important because it, it, it impacts our lives. That's the first one. But it's also important because we have to work on these doctrines as we divide, as, as there are divisions within the body and considerations to be faithful and clear and um, not minimize those, not just act like those divisions aren't, recognize that they are, and then approach them faithfully uh, with understanding. So I'll open up any kind of questions or, or comments here at the end. Not all at once. <laughs> with, well, I was Good enough. And maybe that's too much. 
Well, it's, I think it's enough to say, I haven't studied it, but doesn't the Bible say this? Isn't there, isn't, doesn't Jesus teach this or something? You know, kind of move into a conversation where you're not declaring what God said. You're thinking about it with somebody. Yeah, and I think that's, that's fair and faithful. Uh, it's hard to do that and not get into rancorous discussions sometimes, but, you, you know, it can be done. So I maybe overstate a little bit to say, if you haven't studied it, quit talking. Okay, well, how about this? Study it. Do that. Right, that's the idea. Is these divisions, get to know them, understand what the actual issues really are and how the Bible addresses those issues. Yeah. But, I mean, your starting point for studying could be um, calling out and going, okay, back it up for me. What, how, how do sure. you come to those conclusions? Because that, that helps you not only understand their, their point of view, but how they came about that yeah. and use that as a launching pad for your study. That's great. So uh, just to kind of capitalize on that idea, if you run into somebody you have a disagreement with, make it your first step to understand them, to understand them, to get what they're saying, not just to have a response ready. Right? We all have responses ready, and that goes nowhere. It just puts defenses up. But if you can make a move and actually understand what they're saying, Meet them. Have kind of a heart-to-heart to understand what, what's going on there. That gives you a way in, I think, into the studying and into the conversation uh, as iron sharpens iron. And we all grow together. We get to figure this out together. So that was good and helpful. Um, there at the very bottom, we'll read this. Our attitudes toward varying controversies. Oh, this is the end of it. Uh, summary of doctrinal foundation of Christianity. He just kind of summarizes how Christianity is doctrinal. It's based upon the teaching of the events and what they mean in Scripture. Uh, the question, um, do you think Machen's the 20th century Martin Luther? You know, is, he, is he recognizing a division within the church and putting his finger on it in a similar way that Luther did? Of course, as Luther did it, the whole thing just exploded right? just like fire in the, in the 16th century across Europe. Um, a little bit of that with Machen, too. But is he, is he the same kind of figure, standing up in the gap and saying, hang on, hang on. Um, let's look at this thing clearly and see what we're actually debating and that liberalism isn't Christianity. Right? I, don't, I don't think the reformers got around to saying Roman Catholicism isn't Christianity. They say it's a corrupt church. Right? Uh, something along those lines. And you have to deal with these corruptions. Uh, where Mason's saying, this is in the church. He's not saying they're not the church. He's saying they're not Christian. They're not thinking in a Christian way. They're not teaching in Christian ways. And that we need the clarity uh, of articulation to see that. So Anyway, you can think about Mason as a, a more modern kind of Reformer like Luther. Uh, that'd be fun for you. Okay, let's let's close the prayer.